pray with me, please? Lord, this morning we say with the prophet Jeremiah on Lamentations 3, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is of your mercies that we are not consumed, because your compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's why Jesus came to prove that's true. That's why Jesus endures rejection. That's why Jesus is despised for us to win those mercies, those fresh every morning, new every day mercies. So may we honor him, for he alone is worthy. Even in how we listen now to his word. So may right now you love your people through me as I speak your truth to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you for your singing. Thank you for worshiping. It is so good to be back with you this morning. As they often say, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Last week, we were with our son Noah, who serves as a worship pastor in the greater Louisville, Kentucky area. And um, the whole time we were there in the service, I was thinking, okay, here's what's happening at Bethel right now. Here's what's happening at Bethel right now. And, and we missed our time being with you. It was great to be with Noah it was great to be with his church. We're thankful for him. We're thankful for his church. It reminds me a lot of Bethel. And so uh, they made us feel right at home, but it wasn't home. This is home, and it's so good to be back with you. Thanks to Pastor Dave for preaching last Sunday in my absence. I know what he shared blessed your heart. I've heard from several of you, so thank you, Pastor Dave. This morning, I encourage you to open your copies of the Scriptures to Mark chapter 6. So the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6, as we continue walking our way through Mark's Gospel and following Jesus as He lives His life on purpose. And part of the way He lives His life on purpose is to endure the rejection He knows is coming. Listen, even from those who are closest to Him. Even from those who think they know him best. And so I want you to see this morning in Jesus and his rejection, the intentionality of his love for us. As we conclude our gathering around our Lord's table, celebrating what that love meant and what that love did in Jesus dying in our place. So with that in mind, let's pick up the text in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, where we read that Jesus went away from there, that is from, away from Capernaum, and he came to his hometown of Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, 
A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of our God. I want to begin this morning with a confession. And any time I begin a sermon that way, Joanna's worried about what's coming. (laughs) But here's my confession. For those of you who do not know me all that well, I can be a bit sentimental. And Joanna is thinking right now, well, that's the major understatement of the morning. I am sentimental. I mean, uh, let me give you an example. I love Christmas which is why I've already begun listening to Christmas music. I love the tree. I love the lights. I love the music. I love the fireplace. But I really just love being together as a family. And when we gather as a family now with several of our children grown, the memories come flooding back of Christmas's past. There's just nothing quite like being together at home or being back home in my hometown of Adrian, Missouri. I grew up in a small town south of Kansas City, a town of 1,500 residents. And when we're able to go back and visit my hometown, we pile the kids in the car and I'm going to give them a tour. We drive by the old high school. We drive by the football field and the one grocery store in town. We had one grocery store in town. And thankfully, while I was still in high school, they began carrying Nintendo games that during the summer we would rent as boys. I'd drive my family by the houses where my friends lived and then by all 20 of the lawns we mowed growing up. And after about an hour and a half, the kids are in the back of the car saying, Dad, please have mercy. But I'm up front with tears streaming down my face because there's nothing quite like being home. That's Jesus right here in Mark chapter 6. That's Jesus experiencing all those same human emotions as a human as he's coming back home to Nazareth where he grew up. Where his friends would knock on his door and ask Mary, can Jesus come out and play? Where he would learn the family trade working with Joseph in the carpenter's shop. And Jesus is coming home on the heels of a very big few days. He's calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He's freed a man of his demons. He's healed a woman of her disease. And he's raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. It's all going so swimmingly for Jesus And so when Jesus arrives in Nazareth, we would expect a hero's welcome. We would expect banners strung high across Main Street. We'd expect the local band to be playing and the red carpet to be rolled out and and the mayor to, to present Jesus with the key to the city. I mean, after all, he is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the storm killer. 
the demon defeater, the disease healer, the death overcomer. And with these miracles, Jesus has once again been confirming over and over and over again the truth he's been preaching, that the kingdom of God is here right now in me. I am the promised Messiah. I am the king. So repent and turn from your sins and trust in me. But Luke chapter 4 tells us, At the first time Jesus visited Nazareth, after he had left his hometown, he preached that very message. But the hometown crowd was so angry at Jesus and his messianic claims that they tried to take him outside of town and throw him off a cliff. Definitely not a hero's welcome that time, and it won't be this time either. But this time, it isn't anger Jesus faces, it's apathy. Jesus is no big deal to them. They've heard it all before, the the miracles, the healings, the preaching, and they don't believe it. Just like Jesus' own family. Because back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus' family attempts an intervention on Jesus. They think this whole Messiah thing has gone to his head. He's lost his mind. And so they come to take him away. They come to bring him back home, to get him out of public view, and to get him some help. The hometown Jesus grew up in him, the hometown Jesus grew up in doesn't believe on him, and neither does the family Jesus grew up in. And that sets up the big idea of this text in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. It's this. Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of our honor. He's worthy of our faith. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our allegiance. Even when he's rejected by so many. And that's something Jesus' disciples are going to need to know because in the very next paragraph in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is going to send his disciples out to preach the gospel of Jesus. And many aren't going to receive it or believe it. And you know, the same is true for us. We look around at our world today. Even this morning, there are very few people who are gathered in churches like this to hear about Jesus. And we can begin to wonder, is this all true? If it is true, then why aren't so many flocking to the churches of America this morning to bow the knee and worship to Jesus the King? And why don't the people we love And we pray for and we plead with to swear allegiance to Jesus. Why don't they believe? Why do they remain in the clutches of their unbelief? Our hearts break. Jesus knows what that is. He knows what it's like for our hearts to break over a parent or a child or a sibling or a close friend who refuses to believe on Jesus because that's what's happening right here when Jesus arrives back in his hometown where he's met with astonished unbelief. Now, when you look at the text, 
Um, it's hard and difficult for us to discern what day of the week Jesus arrives with his disciples in Nazareth. But from the way that Mark tells the story here, it seems that Jesus arrives at least a day or two before the Sabbath, and that's significant. Because if you're one of the disciples, what are you going to be doing during those days after what's just happened in Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 5 in the last couple of days? Oh, you arrive in Nazareth, maybe you need a haircut. And so you head to the barber shop, and, and while you're waiting in line, you start talking about the miracles Jesus has just done, everything you've just seen Jesus do. And then the next morning you get up, and of course, like, like any good American or any good Jew, you head off to the local coffee shop, and, you, and you're waiting in line for your coffee, and you're talking about the miracles of Jesus. So the people in Nazareth have heard about Jesus calming the storm and raising the dead so that when he gets up on the Sabbath in their synagogue to teach, they've heard it all. Now, we don't know what Jesus teaches in the synagogue on this Sabbath, but we can assume That Jesus teaches the same message he's been teaching throughout his ministry. Repent and believe in the gospel. And by the way, we also don't know how long Jesus teaches in the synagogue. I always love throwing that one in. You're supposed to laugh at that. We do know, though, the people's response to what Jesus teaches in the synagogue. They are astonished. And when we first read that, we're like, yeah, they're finally getting it. They're amazed. They're shocked. They're astounded. And that's a good thing. You know why? Because we tend to equate being astonished with being impressed. Let me ask, isn't it possible to be astonished without being impressed? I mean, think about gas prices. Are you still astonished by those? Think about the rate of inflation. Think about the amount of property tax you pay. Think about how long it takes us to get anywhere around Chicagoland these days. Astonished, but not impressed. And that's the people here in this synagogue in Nazareth when Jesus is teaching. They're astounded, but not impressed. And we know that because when when Jesus begins teaching, they begin asking questions out loud. Like, where does this man get these things he's saying? I mean, right off the bat, they begin talking smack to Jesus. Because they don't refer to him by name, they refer to him, notice, and I would ask you to underline or circle this in your text, they refer to him as this man. I mean, Jesus spent 30 years doing life in their town. Eating and worshiping and working with them. And if you're from a small town like Nazareth of fewer than 500 people where everybody knows everybody, you know the words this man are a major diss to Jesus. Utter disrespect. And so is their next question. What's the wisdom given to him? I mean, we know this guy. We know that he's never studied at the university or sat at the feet of a rabbi. We know that he went to school with our kids and he sat in our synagogue. So where is he getting all this wisdom? 
And where is he getting all this power to do miracles? Just look at his hands. They're carpenter's hands. We sit in rocking chairs he made for us. We eat at tables he built for us. So the power to do all these miracles, it's most certainly not in him or in his hands. But it has to come from somewhere. It's all so eerie, so spooky, so supernatural. And if you've been here for our study of Mark, you know what the crowd is implying here. They've heard what the Pharisees are saying about Jesus, that he gets his supernatural wisdom and power not from God in heaven, but from the devil and hell. And although the crowd doesn't come right out and say it, that's what they're thinking when they ask the next question. Isn't this the son of Mary? Now, we may read that and we may think, you know, they're referring to Jesus. They're calling out Jesus as a mama's boy. But actually, it's, much, it's a dig that's much deeper than that. Because this is the only place in all the four Gospels where anyone refers to Jesus as the son of Mary. You see, in Jewish culture, you do not refer to a man as the son of his mother, even after his father has died. Now, in our culture, when you say that Ken Fields is Eileen's son, that's no big deal. And yet, in our culture, um, listen, my, my dad whose name is Robert, was so impressed with me during my first few moments on earth that he actually gave me two of his names. My middle name is Robert. My last name is his last name of Fields. I'm not sure he's been impressed with me since. But we'll leave that for another time. The point is this. When the crowd refers to Jesus as Mary's son, They're casting doubt onto who his father really is. Because you remember, Mary and Joseph were telling what they had seen and heard from the angel. That Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That Joseph is not his father. And so the crowd is saying, you know, okay, we remember He's Mary's son because we really don't know who his father is. Wink, wink. So how does this guy, this man, come off claiming he's the son of God? We know his brothers and sisters and they don't believe a word he's saying. And yet he's calling us to repent and to believe on him. Who does he think he is? What has given him this right? And their astonished unbelief turns to offended unbelief. They take offense at Jesus. Now the word offense, would you agree with me that the word offense is thrown around a lot in our world today? Everybody's offended by everything. But it wasn't back then. Back then, an offense was a major scandal. In fact, the Greek word here is scandalon. 
And scandalon refers to something that would be the lead story on the evening news or the front page of the newspaper. It is in your face, shameful kind of stuff. The people in Jesus' hometown, in their synagogue, are scandalized by Jesus. You know why? Now, it's, it's important that you get this. Because Jesus doesn't fit their preconceived messianic notions. And that's the problem. They're viewing Jesus through the lens of what they think the Messiah should be. What they think the Messiah should say. What they think the Messiah should do. You see, unbelief, unbelief is all about creating a God in our own image so that when the real God does show up, we don't like him or want him or believe him because we don't recognize him. That's Nazareth here. And that's why Jesus responds to the people's unbelief and rejection by saying, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Now, when we hear that statement, we we tend to think that Jesus is referring to the old well-known cliche, familiarity breeds what? All right, all right, let's try this again. Familiarity breeds contempt. I've had people down through the years of my pastoral ministry sit in my office for counseling, and sometimes they'll say such sweet things. They'll say something like, PK, you are such a sympathetic and understanding person. And I have to say to those people, you don't have to live with me. Let me give you Joanna's number, and she'd be more than happy to tell you the truth. Because the closer people are to you, the more they know the real you. But that isn't what Jesus is saying here when he says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Instead, Jesus is saying this, the closer people are to me, the more their preconceived notions of the Messiah and who he will be bump up against the real me, that I am the Messiah, that I am God in the flesh. And that's why I say that a prophet is without honor, except in his home, is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own family. I don't fit with what they think Messiah should be. And when that's what they think, there is no honor for Jesus. There is no faith in Jesus. There is no allegiance to Jesus. Unbelief has so blinded Nazareth to who Jesus is that notice what the text says, he can do no mighty work there. No storm stopping, no demon overcoming, no dead raising, just Jesus healing a few sick people. Now, now we can read that and we can think to ourselves, wow, does that mean the people's unbelief is stronger than Jesus' power to perform miracles? But that's not what the text is saying. Jesus' hands are not tied here. It isn't that the omnipotent, all-powerful Jesus suddenly becomes the impotent, weak Jesus in the face of unbelief. 
Because notice here, Jesus does heal a few people. It's not that Jesus has a power problem. It's that Nazareth has a purpose problem. Because what's the whole purpose of Jesus' miracles? The purpose of Jesus' miracles is to prove and to attest to the fact that he is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. And when the people here in Nazareth repeatedly reject all the evidence of his deity, of his godness, of his messiahship, then those miracles serve no purpose in their community. Because Jesus has not come to entertain people with his power. He's come to save people by his grace. But the people of Nazareth want no part of that grace. And so they walk away from Jesus. They leave the synagogue unmoved, unchanged, unaffected. For 30 years, the Son of God had graced them with His presence, walking their streets, sitting in their homes, attending their bar mitzvahs. And now, for a second time, He has returned to teach in their synagogue. And for a second time, they reject him. It's such stunning unbelief. Stubborn unbelief. Unrelenting unbelief. It's the kind of unbelief that leaves the Son of God himself amazed. The one who created the universe and knows the stars by name. Even the ones we can't see. The one who sees the depths of the ocean where no man has gone before. The one who sees it all. Even what's at the subatomic level. From the highest of heavens to the lowest of hell. And out into the farthest reaches of the entire universe. Jesus sees it all. And what leaves him amazed? Unbelief. And that's why Jesus leaves town. It's because he isn't welcome there. He isn't wanted there. And as far as we know, Jesus never again returns to Nazareth. Ever. The die has been cast. They've sealed their fate. They've sent Jesus packing. And that's why I plead with you. Please don't be like the people of Nazareth. For the sake of your eternal soul, don't walk away again from Jesus today. Some of you, some of you come here to Bethel nearly every Sunday, every week, standing as we sing about Jesus, listening as we pray in the name of Jesus, hearing the good news of Jesus. You're familiar with Jesus but you aren't a follower of Jesus because you aren't believing on Jesus. I plead with you. I plead with you. Don't do a Nazareth. Don't walk away from Jesus. Instead, run to Jesus in faith. Bring your sin to Him. It's not too much for Him. He has proven He can handle it and forgive it because He died for it and then rose again to overcome it. If you will come to Him, if you will embrace Him,
He will receive you with open arms. He's promised to in Matthew 11, verse 28, where he says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Will you come to Jesus? Will you trust in him? Will you not turn away from him? Will you repent and believe on him and swear allegiance to him? Because the Bible says, if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. He will give you rest. Come to him. And I especially want to speak to our young people this morning. I want to ask you young people, and you can determine whatever your age is, if you fit into that young people category. Is your faith really yours and not your parents? Is your faith really yours and not your youth pastors? Is your faith really yours and not your churches? Have you genuinely, young people, believed on Jesus. You know, you're growing up in a Christian home and your parents are teaching you about Jesus. Maybe you attend a Christian school and your, your teachers and your chapel speakers are always talking Jesus. And then you come to church. Still more Jesus. And you find yourself in the very same place as the people of Nazareth, surrounded by everything Jesus And for some of you, Jesus has become routine. He's become ordinary, everyday stuff. And if you were honest today, you would admit that like Nazareth, you're bored with Jesus. You've got Instagram, Snapchat. You've got the latest iPhone and a Nintendo Switch. But Jesus, boring. Please listen. I've run up to the scene of a car accident in which one of our youth group girls was trapped between the back and front seats of the car. I've heard the unforgettable sounds of the jaws of life ripping apart the metal to free her. I've walked beside the gurney as they wheeled her into the ambulance. And I can tell you, in that moment, she was not bored with Jesus. She was crying out to Jesus. It's time for some of you young people to stop playing games with Jesus, to stop being bored with Jesus, and to get serious about Jesus because there is coming a day when the die will be cast in your life and your fate will be sealed forever. So young people, I plead with you, please, please, please be all in with Jesus. Don't do a Nazareth. And adults, 
I close with a word to us. Because it's very easy for us to take a step back from this text and say, my word, what a terrible people the people of Nazareth were. Like there's no way this applies to me. I believe in Jesus. But friends, there is a warning here for us all. In this text, we see just how dangerous not honoring Jesus really is. And that's not just limited to those who don't believe. It's for those of us who do. Jesus is worthy of our absolute allegiance, our total surrender, our complete commitment. You see, when we follow Jesus nominally and half-heartedly, we have more in common with Nazareth than we'd ever like to admit. Even though we haven't rejected Jesus outright, we would have to admit if we were honest that there isn't always a discernible difference between our lives and the lives of the non-Christians we work with and live beside. Because sometimes in our lives, Jesus isn't preeminent. Jesus isn't honored. Jesus isn't supreme. Sometimes in our lives, Jesus just doesn't matter all that much. He's kind of like the fuzz. I used to pull off my green blanket when I was a kid and, and I would rub it against my top lip. Now, I am putting myself out there acknowledging this. I'm going to hear about this for years to come and that's okay. Because that's what I did. I'd pluck off that fuzz. I'd rub it against my top lip every night when it came time for bed because it made me feel secure and happy. And that's how a lot of church people treat Jesus. He's the soft, smooth, comfortable blanket fuzz of their, of their lives. He's, he's kind of there in an external way on Sundays He's there in times of crisis and trouble when we have nowhere else to turn. But He's not our everything. He's not our all in all. We're just not all that into total surrender and absolute allegiance. And so my plea to you is Bethel, let's be different. Let's show our kids and our grandkids and our neighbors that Jesus is worthy. Let's show them what all-out, pedal-to-the-metal Christianity really looks like. Let's be radical Jesus followers. Or, or maybe I should just say, let's be real Jesus followers. Let's be Jesus-honoring in our relationships. Let's learn to move past the small stuff. As 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says, let's learn to let love cover a multitude of sins in our relationships with one another. Let's be forgiving rather than begrudging. Let's lay down our lives for each other 
brother for brother, sister for sister, all for one and one for all, not demanding to be served, but serving one another like Jesus, willingly, joyfully, sacrificially. Let's give ourselves up. Our time, our talents we use to serve one another, our energy to love one another, our money. All of that to demonstrate the worthiness of our king. And let's do that not to earn his favor. Let's do that in response to his favor. In response to the grace that's been given to us. Grace that was won for us by his being rejected for us. Not just in Nazareth's synagogue, but on Calvary's cross. It's what Isaiah wrote about 700 years before Jesus came to Nazareth. In Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That was us. Before his grace moved in and overcame our unbelief, that was us. Do you know what that meant for him? It meant that he would be pierced for our transgressions. It meant that he would be crushed for our iniquities. It meant that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds and his wounds only, we have been healed. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. This is our King. The rejected one will be the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's why we come to this table this morning. To His table. Remembering His death by feeding our souls On the grace it took to overcome our unbelief and rejection. And to welcome us into his forever family. So with our lips and with our lives. Let us join with the angels of heaven. Angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands in Revelation chapter 5 who are saying and crying and singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And with our lips and with our lives, let us proclaim that Jesus Christ is worthy. Father, as we come to the table this morning to remember your son's death that came through the the rejection, that came through being despised, I pray, Lord, that we would be serious about you. Have you come to Jesus?
would you come to Jesus? Right now, right where you are, you can call on him in faith and he will save you. We're talking eternity here. Forever. Young people, how serious are you about the Savior? Adults, do our lives proclaim that Jesus is worthy? Absolute allegiance, total surrender, complete commitment. Father, write your work of grace in new ways upon our hearts this morning as we come to your son's table and celebrate what he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.